0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sidney Michelini and today I have Professor Gary Schiffman from Georgetown University here to discuss his new book, The Economics of Violence, published in 2020 with Cambridge University Press. Uh, Professor Schiffman, um, in general, explores the relationship between human behavioral science and national security. He focuses on understanding institutions and individuals engaged in the non-random production of violence. He's an economist, as am I. Uh, he works to understand patterns of illicit human behavior and mathematical models of such behavior to advance knowledge for the promotion of public safety and security. Uh, he teaches at Georgetown University in the School of Foreign Service. Uh, in 2012, he created a software company called Giant Oak. Um, you can actually check that out online uh, to make available the craft of behavioral science applied to violence to large numbers of users, countering illicit acts such as money laundering, human trafficking, drug trafficking, insurgency, and terrorism. Previously, Dr. Schiffman was a managing director at the Shertoff Group, um, providing strategic marketing and an m advisory services to corporate clients. He was a senior VP and general manager at L3, which is a Fortune 200 company, um, and a leading uh, technology systems integrator. He was a senior VP and Gen. I'm oh, sorry, in government, Dr. Schiffman served as chief of staff to the Customs and Border Patrol, which is the largest uh, law enforcement agency in the United States. He served uh, as the leader of the U.S. Senate. He advised the leaders of the United States Senate as national security advisor. He became began his career as U.S. Navy surface warfare officer, um, serving operations tours based out of. Uh, Yokosuka, Japan, and including deployments in support of the Gulf War in the early 1990s and assignments in the offices of the Secretary of Defense and the Chief of Naval Operations in the Pentagon. Dr. Schiffman's publications include what we're talking about today, The Economics of Violence, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press, and Economic Instruments of Security Policy by Paul Gray Gray McMillan. He received his PhD in economics from George Mason University, uh, his MA in security studies from Georgetown University, and his BA in psychology from the University of Colorado. So, uh, Dr. Schiffman, I imagine that having someone read your resume at you is a very odd experience, as it always is for me. But welcome to the new books in economics. We are extremely excited to have you,
1: Sydney. Thank you very much. And you're right; it is it is interesting to hear somebody read the read the biography. Uh, but I I appreciate. I appreciate that, I appreciate uh, the time you've taken to organize uh, and and invite me to this podcast. Thank you very much, it's great to be with you.
2: All right, so um, let's just start off with what I always think is the most important question, which is why did you write this book? Um, I think sort of everything that's in a book usually starts from sort of getting the the purpose by which the author decided to put this book into the world. So what is the story by which this book ended up on my iPad? Uh,
1: Excellent. Excellent question. Excellent place to start. My motivation for this book is to make the, uh, the economic lens that, econ- you know, as economists, Sydney, you and I are trained to see the world in a, in a specific way. And I always view economics as a perspective, as a way of looking at the world, as a way of looking at problems. I tell my students that you don't cram economics the night before it's actually a perspective it's a way of thinking and um, and it is a it's a trade it's a craft that you pick up over time and I've I'm somebody who has spent my career in the national security world and I've picked up the trade or the craft of economics and there's not enough of the blending of those two worlds and so I wrote this book so that way people who are not economists, but interested in things like terrorism and the Islamic State and drug cartels and civil wars, um, if you're interested in um, you know the, the the headlines of you know the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan following the United States decision uh, to withdraw from Afghanistan, if these are interesting topics for you, and I think they are for for most people, um, how can how would an economist look at these questions? This is a book that allows you to get a glimpse of the economist's perspective of these national security questions without having to go get a PhD in economics. So, so that's my motivation. And, and if it's okay, Sydney, I'll just tell you why I think that's important. I mean, clearly it's interesting. Um,
2: Please do. Uh,
1: it's, it's clearly interesting, but... You know, and interesting is a good reason to write something, but I think it's better if it's interesting and important. And and it's important in this way. And I'm going to be a little bit provocative, and I hope you'll um, uh, take the bait and, uh, and and help explore this. But I think we've largely um, we've largely misunderstood national security uh, for most of my professional life, and and that's an indictment of me uh, and my generation. I think. Um, we tend to think about national security problems in terms of identity labels. So we'll, we'll talk about criminals and insurgents and terrorists as if they're three different classes of people. There are, you know, there are terrorists, which are different than insurgents, which are different than uh, um, criminals, and drug traffickers are different, and, and money launderers are different. Um, and I think that's false. That's, a, that's just a huge, massive mistake. But, but the proof of what I'm saying that it's the way we approach threats is that if you look at our institutions that combat violence, you know, we have in the United States, we have the Drug Enforcement Administration that deals with drug traffickers. We have the FBI, which deals with terrorism and other forms of crime uh, we have the US military special operations command, which does counterterrorism overseas. So we have institutions that are highly specialized to address a certain label of threat. And, and we tend to think that way. And as humans, you know, as economists, you know, we, we believe that humans are, are cognitively efficient. Um, which sometimes means that we're lazy and we just look for a label that seems to work and we stick with it. So we divide the world into criminals, insurgents, and terrorists. I think that's wrong. I think that's a huge mistake. The second identity label that we use is um, is we use um, ethnicity, nationality, or religion as a label. So um, Mexican drug trafficker, Islamic terrorist, um, I think these are mistakes as well. So we we tend to simplify the world. We in the national security community, myself included, we've we've simplified the world by saying, "Well, those are Mexican drug traffickers, and those are Colombian drug traffickers, and those are Islamic terrorists, and and those are um, uh, um, you know Christian right wing um, you know uh, uh, groups in." Um, uh, in uh, I'm thinking of Joseph Coney in um, the Lord's Resistance Army, um, and we we label folks based upon the things that are the easiest cognitively to reach, and that is, I look at somebody and I make a snap judgment about them. That's that's a Mexican drug trafficker. That's a an Islamic terrorist, and then I make all sorts of assumptions about them as if they're different. So if you take all of this together, what you've got is you've got a simplifying narrative of how the world works as it relates to violence. And as an economist, if you look at it through the economic lens, which we can get to, you will, a, see a much more interesting way to understand the world, and importantly, you'll see a way to understand the world, which makes it better for us to combat the violence that threatens our safety and security.
2: So th- that sort of summarized a lot of what I got out of the book. Um, and I would say that actually, there's potentially two sets of, of sort of categorizations that you attempt to break down. The first is uh, this idea that we can attribute identity groups to, sort of to people we don't like and sort of say, this is your Mexican drug trafficker example or your Islamic terrorist example, but also the idea that these, these categories of organizations, um, terrorist organizations versus drug trafficking organizations or insurgent organizations or potentially governments, if you want to take this to sort of its logical extent, they mm-hmm. have a lot more in common than we we may have previously thought. And you've mentioned the costs of this simplification um, but you are an economist, and you are you've worked in the national security sort of state, which means that on some level you understand we must simplify so that we can divide things up into groups. It this actually was something I was wondering as I was reading the book: is is there a better way of grouping this broad set of threats that you think would allow us to more efficiently sort of, I guess, parcel out resources to deal with it, um, or is there is there a better structural way of of organizing our I guess problems, if you will, so that they could be sort of addressed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great, a great observation, Sydney. The the fact that we want to simplify the world doesn't make us bad or wrong. It's just human nature. Again, we want to be cognitively efficient. We want to have a story or a narrative that generally explains the world and stick with that story. So I'm not saying we get rid of the identity label. View of of national security in favor of a complicated story because that would never work. Um, the reason I believe that the economic approach will work, and therefore I wrote the book, is because there's a very simple way to understand the world that's not identity label based, and that's market based. So the I'll just do an intro to this Sydney, and then let you respond and and ask questions. But if you if you instead of identity labels think in terms of markets, well, what are the what are the what's the vernacular of of a market? Well, there are entrepreneurs, there are firms, there are institutions, there are um, uh, prices, um, there's exchange. If we use these terms, so just think of to simplify it, think of think of firms, entrepreneurs, and and markets that can explain violence in the world in a way that is much more powerful and meaningful to, A, the, the, interested, the interested person uh, in general, and B, the national security uh, professional specifically can benefit greatly from a market-based perspective of violence.
2: Can you unpack for our listeners what exactly you mean by a market and what you sort of have in mind when you're talking about market based understandings, because I think traditionally we're used to thinking of markets as things that, broadly speaking, states provide to us, or that sort of, I guess, if you use the like older tradition, right, the Prince provides contract protection and sort of there are certain things that come from the state that allow us to have markets that do certain things. Um, if you sort of have maybe some like neoclassical ideas of markets. Can you talk about sort of what framework or what you mean by a market and why this particular sort of definition is the right one to go with?
1: Yeah, great, great question. I love where you, where you took that comment, Sydney. thank you. Um, I participated in a, in a national security um, academic forum, maybe, I don't know, about 10 years ago now where um, you know post 911 and we're trying to figure out well what's the nature of this world in which we have global terrorist organizations and the underlying um, thesis of the conference was um, unrestricted warfare this idea that states as you just said states provide markets and terrorists don't have to worry about rules or markets and and I spoke at that conference and I said it's just a, it's a It's a flawed assumption Um, markets happen wherever people gather to exchange. You do not in any way need a state to have a market. I'll give you a couple examples. So in my, in the classes that I teach, I, I, uh, I often refer to the Godfather, the, the 1972, uh, Mario, you know, movie. Um, um, and, um, and, and Don Vito Corleone what was not an unconstrained actor, right? He was the head of one of the five families and he certainly engaged in violence, but there were very strict constraints on his use of violence. Um, he, in the story of The Godfather, Don Vito Corleone, paid cops and paid judges um, and... Um, And he ran some of the illicit markets in New York City. He ran, you know, prostitution and gambling. Um, And people would come to him and ask for acts of violence, but he couldn't just engage in violence for money because he would lose a lot of his support. Um, And he, you know, famously, um, you know, the other families wanted to get into heroin and Don Vito said he would do it and wouldn't go along. And thus the, the unfolding of the Godfather story happens. Um, that's a market. There is no state providing the market in which Don Vito Corleone, an entrepreneur leading a firm. Okay. Don Vito Corleone is an entrepreneur ahead of the Corleone crime family. His firm is the Corleone crime family. And the market is the underworld of New York city. Um, that's entrepreneurs, firms, and markets. There is no state. It's just if you want to in, engage in the consistent provision of goods and services, there have to be rules and norms. Those are, in uh, economic terms, we call those institutions. And institution, as uh, as you know, Sydney and and to you know to the listeners, the economists define institution as as the rules and associated enforcement. There's no requirement that there be a constitution ratified by anybody. If there are rules that are well known, well understood, and and expectation of enforcement of those rules, you've got an institution. Now, that institution can be the crime families of New York. It can be the Constitution of the United States of America. It could be uh, traffic laws on the interstates of the United States. There are rules and expected enforcement. That's what constrains human behavior. And if you go back, if you abstract away states and non-states and selling pizzas versus selling heroin, if you just forget about all of your moralizing of what's good and bad, you just have rules and enforcement, you have entrepreneurs, you have entrepreneurs organizing, creating firms, um, and you have markets. And that's it. That's all it takes to have a market. You don't need to have a state. And if that's the case, then you can make sense of behaviors because you know you know entrepreneurs will organize into firms and they will comply with the institutional constraints around them. Another example, uh, Pablo Escobar. So Pablo Escobar is one of the case studies I write about in the book. Pablo Escobar didn't, you know, he wasn't born to become, Uh, you know, the, the largest drug trafficker in the, in the world at that time, he started out um, stealing cars and then he got into uh, protecting cars, um, a classic protection racket, which is the story of crime, you know, for the past 50,000 years, it's, or it's always the story of, um, of people doing something bad and then realizing that they can protect you um, from their own bad deed uh, Pablo Escobar did that he stole cars and then he he charged people money to protect their cars from theft and uh, and then he developed a strong network within the institutions of government so he had he had police and he had um, uh, cross-border smuggling uh, channels set up uh, and then and then the United States discovers its love uh, of cocaine, and he dis- he sort of gets the benefit of already being an established smuggler with, with much like Don Vito Corleone, with police and judges and and corrupt officials uh, on his payroll, and he gets the benefit, and so he becomes the you know the largest um, drug dealer in the world for a little while, um, and then he decides that he really doesn't want to to be the, or I don't know what he decides, but his behaviors are consistent with wanting to uh, become a political leader. Um, He runs for Congress. He gets elected. um, He wants to be the president. Um, uh, There are people who come out after him. He starts to blow things up. So he starts to engage in insurgency type activities, uh, working with a guerrilla group uh, in the jungles of Colombia. Then he actually blows up a civilian airliner, Avianca flight, uh, killing over 100 innocent civilians. So he becomes a terrorist. Um, So I think Pablo Escobar is a great example of why the identity label approach to combating violence fails because is Pablo Escobar a criminal, an insurgent or a terrorist? And the answer is yes, he's all three, which is why you can't use one of those labels what Pablo Escobar is—he's is—he's an entrepreneur leading a firm in a competitive marketplace, and he was very successful for for a, a number of years um, uh, until competing firms ended up putting him out of business, um, and that's the better way to think about violence getting get beyond identity labels. So instead of Colombian drug trafficker, think of him as an entrepreneur leading in a firm in a competitive market. And then it all makes sense. And we can think about how do we combat the Pablo Escobars of the world.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: So I I should be completely transparent for our audience. I am at least a young aspiring conflict scholar, and I am an economist, right? So it's it would be pretty hard for um, me to come up here and tell you that I don't think we should use economics to study violence. But I, I think that an objection that we should at least address here is that most of what we learn about in economics or sort of what we have as our toolkit that we've built up, I could say over several centuries, primarily over the 20th century, um, is designed to deal with certain types of markets under certain types of assumptions. And when we really relax some of those assumptions, we, we kind of, uh, we have the chance of letting game theorists sort of say whatever you want. Uh, there's an old joke that if anything happens, I can get a game theorist to say that it was rational. Um, and I'm, I'm just a little, um, I just want to get your thoughts on what it, what it means to sort of define everything sort of as a market or to take these tools that were really built for certain types of problems and open them up to all types of problems or to sort of a completely different set of sort of set of circumstances and what changes that requires and what continuities we have.
1: So, yeah, I mean, there, there's always a, a, a problem with economics that it could be a tautology, which is it's it's rational because it's rational. Um and I think we have to be careful of that. I agree. But beyond that, Sydney, do you have an example of a specific maybe something from the book or something that you know you could conclude from from what we've been talking about that we can just like take it head on.
2: Uh, yeah. So when you were talking, I think it was less with Pablo Escobar because we can clearly see that this this type of um, sort of organization, um, one of the primary things they're trafficking in is money, um, and that seems to be profit, like, uh, in U.S. dollar profit seems to be one of their key sort of objectives. But when we get to some of the other organizations, I think the other ones were, um, I read this book like a couple of weeks ago, but were Kony and then sort of you start looking at um terrorists, primarily like ISIS, um, and Al Qaeda. You you start to talk about outcomes that are profits that could be ideological or that sort of could be um, a sense of belonging that there are, that there are things that can be defined as profits that are not just not dollars, which is something you can understand, but not immaterial. And I, I'm just curious, sort of, how that changes the calculus here.
1: Yeah, thank you, Sydney, for for that and for the question and the clarification. Yeah the the opening. Um, to, to many of my lectures is often this, you, you know, and I stomp my foot and feel strove so passionately about this, that economics is not about money. Um, and it's amazing how many times that you can explain, you can explain that. And then still people will come back to, um, conflating economics with money. Economics is the, uh, deals with um, exchange of value, exchange of value, right? And we as, as humans tend to simplify value in, and we denominate it in dollars. So if, you know if, if I have a laptop in front of me and I want to think about how value is valuable as a laptop, I might say, well, it's worth about $1,000 dollars. But that $1,000 is, again, just a convenience of an easy way to think about value. You could just as easily say, well, the laptop is worth two bicycles to me, right? Um, but that's hard, right? It's it's um, it's cumbersome to think about how many bicycles is my laptop worth. It's easy to think about how many dollars is my laptop worth and how many dollars is my bicycle worth. Um, I want to really agree and and thank you for raising that point and that even economists have a hard time with this. Even economists have a hard time with um, conflating economics with dollars. I don't understand why to me. And to answer your question directly to me, I can talk about, you know, um, uh, a criminal being in it for, Uh, greed, power, or grievance. In it for the money, in it for the power, in it for revenge. All of those are valid reasons which might motivate an entrepreneur to engage in the provision, the sustained provision of violence. It could be for any of those reasons. And I think all of them are equally legitimate. So your question to me is, how does it change the story if, let's say that Let's say that um, uh, Joseph Kony or Osama bin Laden one is wasn't in it for the money. How does it change the story? The answer is it doesn't change it one bit. They were in it for something. Um, now what I think is interesting, so you can you can let me know if I'm off the hook on that one yet, Sydney, or you can come back and push back. But to me, the, the short answer is it doesn't change the story at all because I don't really uh, care if they're in it for greed, power or grievance. They're in it. They're engaging in violence um and if i treat them as an entrepreneur leading a firm i can think about how to combat the firm right um the more interesting variation on the question that you ask sydney is do i need to care what the motivation is right so in the framing of the question you assumed that pablo escobar was in it for the money because he was a drug trafficker and he made lots of money um what if he wasn't? Um, what if Pablo Escobar was in it for the prestige? What if Pablo Escobar was in it most of his life because he wanted to be a big, powerful person? Um, he, uh, When he was younger, he had told his son that he wanted to come to the United States to negotiate with the president of the United States. Um, maybe that statement from his childhood was actually... You know, part of the core ethos of Pablo Escobar, which is, I want to be a well-respected person on the world stage, and yet this this market for cocaine happened, and he made lots of money, and he became a, you know, a, a, the, the 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 number one drug trafficker in the world. But what if that wasn't his motivation? What if that was a um, a coincidence of the market? So, so the the point is, is I don't know what really drove Pablo Escobar and neither do you, and neither does the head of the DEA, and neither does the head of the FBI at the time. We don't really know what drives any individual's motivations. Do we need to care? Um, And as an economist, as, as you know, economists, we like to look at revealed preferences. And if I can observe somebody's pattern of behavior can I learn everything I need to know to combat that behavior if that's something that I choose to do? So um, just in in, in in case I just rambled and wasn't coherent, just to come back to your question. Um, if they're not motivated by money, it doesn't matter one bit because lots of things can motivate human behavior. The interesting question is: is, as economists, do we need to, ask ourselves what motivates them or do we just need to look at the pattern of behavior and develop market countermeasures based upon what we observe
2: so i'm actually going to let you off the hook mostly for that because that was about the answer i was i was expecting i was expecting to get because you've written all of your thoughts in this lovely book that people should, should definitely read um but there, there is sort of i think sitting out there a, a, we won't go too far into this, but a theoretical sort of critique here. and that is that if we, if we abstract from money and we look at sort of materialist and potentially immaterialist and maybe there's not a great dichotomy here um, uh, sort of approaches to, to what is potentially incentivizing large numbers of people to organize in certain ways, we do come to this this potentially fundamental problem that there are certain materialist things such as belonging or friendship that certainly can, you can sort of, they can motivate material action. They can be sort of trait, they can be sort of obtained uh, in certain exchanges, but there are, they they also have constraints on the ways in which they can be exchanged that are potentially fundamentally different from the ways in which um, material things can be exchanged. So if I was interested in, in, you know, sort of obtaining, obtaining, Dollars as a as a sort of like catch all term for some material material situation that might be different than if I was sort of looking for prestige because it it is not necessarily well there are ways to it is not necessarily straightforward that you can trade one for the other or that you can trade anything you have for this some notion of prestige or some sort of ideological goals and the way that it is much easier particularly sort of. In the in the modern world, to trade one material set of objects for another, that that was sort of what I was what I was getting at. And I'll give you a minute if you want to talk about that, or if you just want to leave that, and then we can we can sort of move on.
1: Yeah, there's there are a lot of ways to to go from that. So um, if you have something of value, is there always a market in which you can sell it, or are there? Constraints or limited markets, Um, and I think that's the nature of your question. Um, I think technology is something I don't know if you want to get into it on on in this discussion, but I think technology is changing that, right? So if you have some sort of illicit good, um, uh, you know, there are illicit marketplaces online that you know twenty years ago didn't exist. Um, So I, I would just. In the interest of moving on, I would just I would just answer, respond to your observation with the observation that if you have something of value, you can usually find a market. You can usually find a buyer, and technology probably makes that easier. Although I'm not sure that that's always true, um, and that what you have of value doesn't have to be uh, money. Um, it it can be a means towards friendships. It can be a mean a means towards belonging, um, and I think these are some of the most interesting areas of economics and security going forward. Is um, is is this field, and it's something that I'm starting to spend more and more of my time on.
2: Perfect. So, I I don't want to go too deep into theory conversations because I think the only two people will be me and you who are super interested. But I, I for our audience, I would actually like to ask um, to sort of move to the broader, I guess, question of, so if we were to to shift um, from a national security policy that, that that is based more on this identity framework, or sort of on sort of categorizing different sorts of threats, um, and we were to shift to really internalizing some of this economic thought, and we were to sort of let, you know, sort of more economists in, or people with economic training, or people who just have this framework, what, what do we gain and what types of sort of policies would change or sort of what types of what, what would happen like what would what would operationalizing that look like
1: so I think um, I think what we would need to do when I say we I mean the the community of folks who who engage in activities to oppose illicit illicit violence so um, that could be um, you know, the the U.S. national security community, the federal law enforcement, um, European, you know, I mean, it, it could be governments in collaboration around the world. Um, so, you know, I tend to have a U.S. centric uh, perspective because I've been a member of the U.S. national security uh, world for for my adult life. But there's this is not a the the key to this is thinking in market terms on our end as well meaning the ability to work across borders and barriers in ways that we haven't been able to do so in the past. So that could be the, you know, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice in the United States working better together with each other and with the Department of Defense. It could mean the um, U S law enforcement working better with uh, friends and allies in, in governments around the world better, um, and and thinking thinking in these kind of networked markets uh, uh, in you know domestically and globally is where it would lead us. Um, and let me just get kind of one level more specific with you, but that's the high level. It's it's about being more dynamic and working across borders. And by borders, I mean, you know, domestically the borders between two agencies, as well as, 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 geographic and geopolitical borders. Um, so specifically, um, you know, if, if I am a federal law enforcement agent and, you know, and I have had a, a, a you know, federal law enforcement badge in the past, my, my career is, um, uh, is the subject of how well I do within that agency. And so if that agency has a specific mission, which is back to identity labels, I am I am supposed to be combating Islamic terrorism. I am supposed to be uh, combating Mexican drug traffickers. Then I need to focus on that. Um, but the, the illicit actors aren't looking at the world the same way. They don't wake up in the morning saying, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a Colombian drug trafficker. And so this is what I have to do. They're like, I have, you know, I have goals and I have constraints and I'm gonna go about uh, uh, working in the market uh, of goals and constraints. Um, So what we're gonna see is we're gonna see ways to incentivize folks engaged in the fight against illicit violence. We're going to find ways to incentivize them to collaborate and work across institutional barriers. So that way, there's more collaboration. Um, and in the, the structure, there are three points that I make in the book on how, how specifically we do this. The first step is we have to do market analysis of the threat. We have to, I'm going to say that again because it's so critical. We have to do market analysis of the threat. Um, When I was starting my career, we did military analysis of the threat. We looked at their order of battle. We looked at how many weapons they had and how quickly those weapons could move and how far those weapons could fire. Um, But what we need to do is market analysis, meaning our, our adversary is a firm led by an entrepreneur, and they're participating in a market, and we're participating in the exact same market. So how do we cause them or or what, what is the business analysis of that competing firm? So where do they generate their revenues? How much money do they have? Do they have a lot of money? Uh, do they have a big budget, an annual budget or do they have a small annual budget? How do they, how do we, um, how do they increase their budget? How do we get their budget to decrease? How do they recruit? How do they retain their talent? How do they train their workforce? Um, how do they move and store their money? Um, all of these. Uh, what, what's their mission? Do they have a Do they have a, a successful marketing program in which they can tell a story and get public support? You know, back to Pablo Escobar and Joseph Kony and Osama Bin Laden. All of them at various times had stories that engendered public support. They could They could uh, walk uh, down the street in public and and uh, and be applauded for that while you know, while they were wanted by the United States and, and other governments in the world. So how are they doing on marketing? How are they doing on sales? How are they doing on these externally uh, facing functions? So if, if uh, Sydney, you and I were to invest in a business, we would ask a series of questions about that business. I'm saying that if we want to defeat another business, we would ask those same questions. And if that business is is uh the Taliban or the Islamic state we should ask those exact same questions that we would ask as 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 business analysts the second thing is we want to define victory in market terms so now that we've done that market analysis we have to figure out what is victory so we defeated we collectively you know United States and friends and allies we defeated uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq um, but the Islamic State rose in its place. Um, we pushed back the Taliban in Afghanistan, and now we're leaving. The Taliban is coming back with a vengeance. Um, we, didn't, we, thought about, we thought about kinetic victory, but, I th- but we need to think about market victory, which is how do we address the market dynamics that allowed these violent and illicit firms to rise up in the first place? Because in both of those two examples, we, we defeated the stated enemy. And I, if, if you had a camera on me, I just did air quotes and defeated. We defeated the enemy. And then once we as a firm pulled out of that market, the enemy came right back. It's happening today in Afghanistan. It happened in Iraq after the, the quote, defeat, unquote, of, uh, of al-Qaeda in Iraq so we need to we need to define victory in market terms and that is we have to change the nature of the market what is it that enables these groups to engage in violence to engage in drug trafficking to engage in sustained sustained provision of of violence against innocent civilians and if we want that to stop we have to look at the market dynamics that first step do do your business analysis first then define victory in terms of of, uh, of the market and then the third is we have to fight like an entrepreneur and this gets back to where I started which is as an entrepreneur we have to think of ourselves as a firm and so we need to insource uh, and subcontract and contract out different capabilities so that way we can engage as a participant in a marketplace. So sometimes that's kinetic sometimes that's you know cruise missiles and bombs and, and guns and people fast roping out of helicopters. Sometimes it's, um, it's uh, it's anti money laundering and combating the financing of terrorism and working through uh FATF and, and all of the kind of the in- international monetary uh, instruments we have for combating the movement and storage of money from people engaging in this. Uh, it's, it's about narratives and making sure that they're marketing and recruiting and retention um, isn't as effective as they want it to be. And it costs them more money to recruit and retain good talent. Um, so it's about thinking like a business entrepreneur, business executive, and going into this market and causing your firm uh, to go out of business. Um, and so that is the, the three steps, Sydney, that thinking, thinking, getting past identity labels and thinking in economic terms Thinking about firms, entrepreneurs and markets, it would cost us to do those three things, which is do the business analytics, define business, define victory and market terms and then fight like an entrepreneur.
2: So could you just take this approach you just laid out for us and maybe give our audience and me, I'm actually really curious about this, um, a slight intellectual maybe history of of this approach, because it's important for this, this story. I'm 22 years old. And I feel like in my lifetime, there's been sort of, at least they've been talking about, kind of a shift towards this type of approach, away from it also goes with the idea of asymmetric threats, away from sort of a bipolar world in which we're primarily focused on larger conflicts. But I'm I'm curious why this is this is it either is new or is being sort of packaged as new, because my understanding of most of my grandparents' lifetime and sort of combats throughout the Cold War. Is it involved, you know, sort of keeping on staff large numbers of, you know, client guerrilla groups or combating lots of sort of, you know, different types of organizations all over the world to sort of have, I guess, what you would call proxy wars, but sort of it involved a lot of these types of of entrepreneurs. And I'm, I'm interested if maybe this type of thought has been used in the past, and we just didn't think of it this way, or if this really is new, and if so, sort of what were we doing before or why did we do this? Why did we ever have this, this old model that you're arguing against? Did it solve some problems for us or were we just wrong? Which is by the way, I'm happy to believe we used to be wrong, that I'm fine with.
1: Yeah, <laughs> great. Um- yeah. And in, in the last, uh, you know, the last minutes of our time together, you asked kind of this massive question, Sydney, which is, which is great. And I'm glad that you're personally interested and, and I assume the, the listeners will be as well. I, where it starts for me, if I were to do kind of like a lit review in a couple minutes for you here, I would say, um, uh, you know, there's, if you look at the history of counterinsurgency, um there's a whole lot of literature um goes back to like the Vietnam war and during the Vietnam war there was this argument that in order to win and, and by the way the Vietnam war predates me as well so your 20 your age and my age were both on equal footing on kind of like the Vietnam war but but that's where uh, for me a lot of this conversation started um in the in the intellectual literature um And the idea Galula is one of the uh, key references, you know, if you want to do the lit review on um, insurgency, counterinsurgency. Um, but this idea of the hearts and minds. So like, like, you know, the, we could go to Vietnam and we could fight the enemy in the juggles of Vietnam, but, um, you actually have to win the hearts and minds of the local population in order to effectively win a counter. to to defeat an insurgency. So to be a successful counterinsurgent, there's this question of hearts and minds. And interestingly enough, DARPA, the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, in its very, very early days, was going to start studying this. And so there was this behavioral science component. And then uh, I'm going to digress for 20 seconds here, but then the, the Soviet space program got the United States worried about us being behind in space. And so DARPA then started focusing on space instead. And in my view of the world, and lots of people could, and, 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 and will fight me on this, but in my view of the world, that's when the mistake started to happen. When the, the major research and development dollars in the U.S. national security world got diverted into space, we stopped what was going to be research into human behavior uh, for national security purposes, So with my book, Economics of Violence, I'm trying to revive that and say, look, it's time for us to get back to this understanding of human behavior Um, because this, I don't know if the phrasing hearts and minds is the right phrasing, but that's how it was phrased back then, which is we have to understand how to win the hearts and minds if we're going to uh, engage in successful counterinsurgency. Um, I think we got distracted for, um, what's that 40, 60 years or so we've been distracted. And I think it's time we get back to it. I'm actually very optimistic, Sydney. I think we are going to get back to it, but I think we've been misguided all these years. I think we have focused on, um, I think we have focused on kinetic warfare. I think we have focused on bombs and bullets and guns, um, and taking out the leader. And I think we're exceptionally good at that. But in, as you said in, in the introduction, you know, my first job out of college when I was your age, I went to the Gulf War. Um, and we were firing, uh, cruise missiles, uh, from the middle of the Persian Gulf, uh, you know, into Iraq and pl- taking out the, um, anti air. Uh, weapons of Saddam Hussein's army. So that way aircraft could fly overhead and bomb and then the, the land forces rolled in. So that was, that was warfare and that was victory. Um, but I'm suggesting that maybe it wasn't victory because what happened after that is we had, um, you know, we had uh, ongoing conflict in Iraq. We had ongoing conflict in Afghanistan. We had the rise of Al Qaeda. We had the defeat of Al Qaeda in Iraq. We had the rise of the Islamic State. Uh, We had the diminishing power of the Taliban, and now we have the rise of the Taliban. And so the failure, Sydney, and again, I'm I'm equally guilty here, but the failure has been this focus on kinetic warfare, on us um, winning on the battlefield. And I think that's important, and I think we need to continue to be able to win on the battlefield. But I think that's necessary and not sufficient. And I think we need to think about market power and defining the marketplace and looking at who are the powerful actors in a given market and making sure that if we want to um, set the rules of that market, then we need to figure out what does market power mean in that context.
2: Thank you for that. Um, I'm just going to leave that as it is because it was was really good. It was a short synopsis, and I don't want to take up too much time of yours or the listeners. So I'm going to transition to our last two questions on the new book network. Um, they are traditional. Um, but the first one is to ask you sort of what are you working on now? Um, presuming you are working on something, uh, if you're not working on anything, that's also a valid thing to be doing with your life.
1: Um, so what am I doing now? Um, so I am, I am, you know, as a scholar and economist, I am interested in, in, um, ways in which you would influence human behavior in a non-kinetic fashion. And I think we're seeing, um, uh, disinformation as a, as a weapon. Um, so we can have state on state conflict and I at, and and I would argue that we are in the middle of state on state conflict without a weapon being fired and that is through influence campaigns and information and disinformation campaigns on the internet if i could get if i could in the past if i could get you know a million people to do something because of a threat of nuclear war the point is, is i got a million people to do something it's not that i used a new threat of a nuclear weapon to do it but i got a lot of people to do something what if I could get a million people to do something today without ever having to have a nuclear arsenal? I think that's the world we live in today, um, and I think it's largely unexplored and under understood. And um, that's the most interesting thing right now is thinking about disinformation in in the internet age and thinking about it from a from a from a violence and coercion perspective or or from a, from a coercion perspective. Um, um, And uh, I, I'm the CEO of two software companies. uh, Both of them engaged in these kind of, um, you know, national security questions, looking at human behavior as it is disintermediated by technology um, and ways in which we can identify unknown threats in internet space, in online space, and ways to do that while preserving privacy. So those are, I think, some of my um, uh, kind of most cool and interesting themes I'm working on right now.
2: That's super interesting. I look forward to seeing whatever comes out of it, um, whether it be a book or just you sort of presenting on a podcast or however, however that ends up in public. I'm, I'm, I really look forward to seeing what you come up with. Um, and then sort of the last question is, uh, we've talked a lot about your book, which I highly recommend to people. Um, but do you have another book or another article or another thing that you're, you, you're reading or have recently read that you would like to give a shout out to and let our audience know about?
1: Hmm. So, um, so I'm one of those people that usually reads a couple books at a time, depending on, you know, what's my, you know, mood in the evening, which book I pick up, but, um, uh. I just started reading and this is sort of weird, but maybe as a young economist, you'd understand, but I just started reading theory of the leisure class uh, by Thorstein Veblen um, because I'd never read it and it sounded really interesting. So um, that was, you know, he wrote that in 1899 about, um, about the leisure class and uh, it's very interesting. So I just started that this week. Um, That's, that's like beach reading for me, Um, you know, fun, uh, go to the beach and read something fun. So I, I'm reading that. Um, um, I just finished uh, Homegoing by Ya Gyasi as a novel, um, which is really, really a cool novel about, it's about identity, um, which are, as um, is, is you've picked up from this conversation, I'm really interested in, in humans and, and uh, questions of identity and homegoing. Um, is a great first novel by an amazing writer, Ya Gyasi. Um, and, um, and I just finished narrative economics by Robert Schiller, which is again, this idea of, of stories and how stories can motivate human behavior. Um, and so those are the three, three things on my nightstand right now.
2: All right, guys, um, when you're done reading this book, you now have homework. Uh, so get busy. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the book is the economics of violence. It, it's from Cambridge university press. It was published last year. I have read it. It is really good. I uh, recommend you pick it up from either your local bookstore or Amazon or wherever else you like to get books. Um, and uh, Dr. Schiffer, thank you very much for joining us. Um, bye everyone.
1: Great Sydney, thank you. I enjoyed it. Great job. Appreciate it.